welcome to Mystics and Molder, a comedy podcast at the intersection of faith and popular culture. I'm Sarah. I'm Maeve. And we have a very exciting episode for you all. Mm-hmm. Um, given the current, well, more attention on the Black Lives Matter movement and all the protests going on, we thought it would be a good time to uh, use what platform we had to amplify Black voices and other voices of color. So Mm -hmm. today we'll be talking about some of our favorite Black theologians and theologians of color. Yeah, we're really excited about this episode to be able to honor these amazing scholars and activists and writers and people who are so influential um, to our faith and to our learning. And we've invited some of our friends and peers in ministry to also share the reflections. So thank you to everyone who contributed. Yay. Thank you to them. Without further ado, we will let them speak for themselves. Yay. Let's go. When considering Black theology as a white person, it's essential to view the theologians not as an aberration from the canon, but a central expansion of the canon. Black theology isn't an elective course. It ought to be in its rightful place within the canon of theological thought. White people need to make sure that the consumption of Black theology isn't an observation of the strange and the different but read with the same seriousness and critical thought as any other work of theology. We cannot tokenize black theologians and must be careful with our consumption. And with that being said, my favorite black theologian is James Cone. Reading his work gave my theology urgency. He writes consistently on the danger of neutral theology. He says that neutrality is violent and dangerous. Staying quiet in the face of injustice is antithetical to the gospel. Cohn writes from his own unique socio-political location as a black man growing up in the South, but his words are relevant to all people who are trying to align themselves more fully with Jesus and the struggle of the oppressed against the oppressor. The two theologians who have impacted me the most are Ebony Marshall Terman, assistant professor at Yale Divinity School, and Emily M. Towns, dean of Vanderbilt Divinity School. At the AAR in Denver in 2018, they both spoke on a panel reflecting on Dolores Williams' seminal work of womanism, Sisters in the Wilderness. I will never forget how crowded the room was. Attendees were lining the walls two or three deep and sitting on the floor in the aisles. Everyone listened with rapt attention, with only occasional murmurs of agreement when a particularly incisive point was made. Otherwise, it was the most intense, focused silence, as each panelist spoke about the importance of womanism and its urgency in the Academy today, 25 years after Williams's book. It was incredibly moving to know that Dr. Terman had been a student of Dr. Towns and that Dr. Terman had a student of her own on the panel. Three generations of scholarship were before us, offering their unique perspectives on an evolving field of knowledge and work. Their indictments of the Academy of Whiteness and of white women's academic complicity in particular made an indelible impression on me. I left that panel feeling my paradigm completely shifted, understanding with a new urgency that I had to actively work to rectify white supremacy in classrooms and research. In the year and a half since I heard them deliver those papers, I have thought of them countless times. Their work has motivated me to pursue projects exploring the theological roots of concepts such as justice, empathy, vulnerability, and healing, and the ways in which they shape our individual and collective presence and futures. 
I am indebted to their work and that unforgettable panel for my understanding of the contributions the field of religious studies can and must make to the realization of a better world. I hope the AAR continues to invite them, their students, and other womanist scholars to present their projects and in a much, much bigger room next time. Hey there, my name is Claire George Drumheller and I am the campus minister at Davidson College. Thanks Sarah and May for this invitation to share about my favorite theologian who is a person of color. And I'm gonna tell you a little bit about my late professor, Dr. Katie Geneva Cannon. Dr. Katie Cannon dedicated her life's work to elevating the perspective of black women in the church, theology, and academia. Dr. Cannon was born in 1950 in Kannapolis, North Carolina. And for you Wildcats who are listening, that's less than 20 miles away from Davidson College. She was raised in the Presbyterian Church, and she could recite scripture and the Lord's Prayer from a very young age. But at the same time, segregation made it illegal for Katie to play on the playground or to go to the library. She felt this disconnect between the Christian faith she was learning at church and the world she was living in. She'd find herself wondering what black people could have done that was so bad. A good God wouldn't do this. Dr. Cannon went on to Barber Scotia College and Johnson C. Smith Theological Seminary. She was ordained in 1974 as the first black woman ordained in the Presbyterian Church. She went on to earn her PhD from Union Theological Seminary in New York, and in her doctoral work, she continued to ask those same questions she faced as a child about the conflict between the experiences of black people, women specifically, and the good God the church talks about. She found that what she was hearing in churches and reading theology excluded the experience of black women. Dr. Cannon is credited with creating a branch of theology that really did not exist before her work, womanist theology. It seeks to offer a different perspective than the white and male-centered views of religion and ethics by valuing the experiences and insights of black women. So for example, in theology, the Christian idea of suffering is usually defined from the perspective of a white and male dominant class. Or in other words, the idea of suffering is presented from the perspective of a comfortable existence where suffering can be viewed as a choice. But for the black community and for women, suffering is not a choice, but the normal state of affairs. Dr. Cannon helped the church to see that we can learn more about how big and diverse God's good creation is when we listen to more voices specifically the wisdom found in the everyday lives of Black women. Dr. Cannon died in 2018. She was a gifted teacher. She had a bright personality and a wonderful sense of humor. And her scholarship was so groundbreaking, there often just wouldn't be the vocabulary for what she was writing. So Dr. Cannon would create words in order to be able to communicate her work. Long before the term being woke was around, she created this word conscientization to talk about the process of becoming conscious, of becoming aware of our prejudices, our isms, racism, classism, ageism. If you want to learn more about Dr. Cannon, and I hope you do, I suggest you start with her book, Katie's Cannon, Womanism and the Soul of the Black Community. Dr. Cannon's work was groundbreaking and set the church on a new trajectory. Thanks be to God.
A theologian that I respect and admire greatly is Dr. Cecilia Gonzalez-Andre. She was my professor at Loyola Marymount University. She was the first Latina that I had ever had who taught theology to me, and to have a theology teacher who looked like me was life-changing and has motivated a lot of where I am today. She has pushed me to continue to pursue education and to write what I feel and to reimagine how I learn and what liberation and justice looks like in my own community. It's rare um, to have teachers in undergrad sometimes that are not just teaching you in the classroom, but also mentoring you in office hours, and then also showing up to the rallies that you're planning, but also encouraging you to go to protests. And to have a teacher that was doing all of that, that looked like me, but that was also always checking in to see how we were feeling and to care for the whole of who we were, was amazing and speaks a lot to the theology that she preaches and that she practices. Dr. Cecilia always reminds us to return to the gospel and to think about those in our community who are being silenced uh, or forgotten. So I appreciate the way that she speaks up for immigrant rights, for undocumented students on campus, and the way that she just always shows up, which is so reflective of the theology that she speaks of, writes on, and practices in her daily life. Hi, my name is Julia Berkeley, and I am a Midler at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Um, I'm really excited to share with you guys today about one of my favorite theologians of all time, who is Dolores Williams. Um, She has written so many books, um, but the one I'll be focusing mostly on today, and a little quick little segment about her, is her book, Sisters in the Wilderness, um, which discusses specifically the story of Sarah and Hagar, but also the lived experiences of black women and how they find support and kind of commonality with biblical stories that have typically been used to oppress them. Um, Obviously, I can't do all of that in a couple of minutes, so I'm going to focus specifically on her theories of atonement and redemption. Um, So Williams sees as part of her womanist thought, so she's, I don't think I actually mentioned that, she is a black feminist theologian, which kind of is a blanket term for womanist, and she really lives in that intersectionality between black and woman, and really wants to bring the truth and the life to that intersectional experience of her peers and her sisters, and just that part of society that oftentimes is not talked about, Um, and so when you think about Jesus's death, um, classically that is in kind of invoked as this Jesus died for the sake of our sins. So this paints Jesus as this kind of surrogate figure that in order for us to be saved, Jesus had to be a substitute for us. Um, in her thought, that actually is quite problematic because it perpetuates this kind of surrogate um, prototype, but not prototype, but like um, stereotype that black women get painted under um, because black women have been surrogates for historically, I mean, white women um, as they nurse their babies, um, surrogates in different like nanny mammy cult- culture um, 
but also for black men as they as they take on the the role of family and so for her um it, this Jesus as surrogate is quite problematic so the way that Dolores Williams ultimately reconciles is that is that she does not see the cross as the source of redemption um she says the cross is an image of defilement a gross manifestation of collective human sin and that's in her book on page 31 and so in order for her to feel like we have to we can justify black women's lived experience um, we must show and i quote that redemption of humans has nothing to do with any kind of surrogate role jesus was reputed to have plated in a bloody act that supposedly gained victory over sin and or evil um Instead, she sees the redemption of Jesus to come in his actions in life. Um, he conquered sin not when his ultimate death and in that surrogate space that so many classical white theologians have painted, but instead in his actions of life in the Gospels, um, where he gives food to the poor, where he welcomes the stranger, where he heals the sick. And for her, in that action, is where we see the redemption of Jesus instead of this gross defilement of humanity. So for her, that in showing the life of Jesus as the state of, state of redemption, it affirms that Black women's experiences in life also can lead to their own redemption um, and salvation instead of this kind of identification with this evil that she sees of the cross that justifies surrogacy and justifies the, ex- the experiences that of racism um, in her mind. And so I really appreciate her explanation of that because to me that really lives into this intersectional identity of seeing the experiences of Black women and how it's been such, it, their, their lives have been kind of rooted in these complex narratives um, and using Jesus as a way to affirm their experiences and using Jesus's life as a way to show salvation um, in a way that I never have read about until I read her. Um, So that's a little short snapshot of who she is um, and one of her theories. I hope that made sense. Um, And I'm just really grateful to share about one of my favorite, favorite black theologians or one of my favorite theologians of all time, really. Um, She's a gift. So thank you. Thank you all again for sharing all your reflections and your favorite theologians. I really just want to kind of repeat what Grace said about, you know, it's important not to trivialize or tokenize these theologians and their theologies and how, you know, so often we think of, you know, the regular canon of theology and then add on, you know, like womanist theology or black theology, when in reality we should really, really let them be taking the lead in, in how we form and think of of our theology. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think it's important to keep in mind that they should be treated as incorporated, fully important members of the canon of theology because they have made so many strides and their work is so rich. I also just really appreciate how everyone who, you know, sent in their memo, they were so open about the personal connections they had to these theologians. Some of them knew them personally um, and really felt this deep connection. 
So thank you for that. We appreciate your vulnerability and your willingness to talk about how these theologians have personally impacted you. Sarah, would you like to start uh, and talk about one of your favorite theologians? I would love to. The first theologian I would like to talk about is Reverend Dr. William Barber, who is described by Timothy Tyson, a historian professor, as one of the most important progressive leaders in this state of North Carolina in generations. And he said that he, he quote-unquote, built a statewide interracial fusion political coalition that has not been seriously attempted since. So just to kind of like set the, the platform for how important Reverend Barber is, I just, I really like that quote because it's just, he's amazing and I, I really look up to him. Quick source recognition, got a lot of this from our favorite Wikipedia <laughs> and the NAACP. So Reverend Barber was born August 30th, 1963 in Indianapolis, and then he and his family moved to Washington County, North Carolina to participate in the desegregation of public schools there. He got his MDiv at Duke University and his doctorate from Drew University with a concentration in public policy and pastoral care, which I think is really cool. I love that intersection. Since 1993, he has been the pastor of Greenleaf Christian Church, which is a Disciples of Christ congregation in Goldsboro, North Carolina. I just think it's crazy that he's been there since 1993. That's such a long time for one pastor to be in one place. And since he's been there, the congregation has done a lot of really good work, uh, you know, connecting with the community and being... Um, a source of, of, of good for that community. He's also been a visiting professor at Union Seminary in New York City. Starting in April of 2013, Barber and the NAACP led regular Moral Mondays. Moral Mondays are a civil rights protest that happened in Raleigh, and I've been to one before, and it's just, it's really cool to see so many people coming out to just protest for pretty much everything because like it's really a coalition. So Reverend Barber in 2014 founded Repairers of the Breach, which is a, a nonprofit that kind of goes against this idea that the preeminent moral issues of our time are prayer in public schools, abortion, and property rights. And instead they say it's actually how we are treating the poor, women, LGBTQ plus people, children, workers, immigrants, communities of color, and the sick. And they say on their website, our deepest moral traditions point to equal protection under the law and desire for peace within and among nations, the dignity of all people, and the responsibility to care for our common home, which I really love that. They have a new, well, new-ish kind of campaign called A Poor People's Campaign, or a National Call for Moral Revival, which builds off Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's legacy and does a lot with fusion politics. So like I said, it's kind of like this idea that we're all stronger together. Like if workers' rights advocates stand with immigrants' rights advocates, then, you know, we can all be more powerful than we were separately. And he talks about this in his book, The Third Reconstruction, More on Monday's Fusion Politics and the Rise of New Justice Movement. Read it last summer, would recommend. It's very good. It also has parts from 
Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, who is another theologian. He's not black, but he is a UMC preacher that I really admire. So just to like name <laughs> some more work that he's done, he's helped lead, uh, according to NAACP, fight for voter rights, just redistricting, healthcare reform, labor and workers' rights, protection of immigrant rights, and reparation for women survivors of eugenics release of the Wilmington 10 and education equality. So literally like everything that you could possibly imagine, he is there for it and he's doing the work and he's been arrested three times because of it, probably will be in the future. I was able to hear him speak at the Wild Goose Festival, which is kind of like a hippy dippy Christian festival up in the mountains of near Asheville, North Carolina. And it was just really incredible to hear him speak. He's such a, like a passionate speaker. Um, but it was kind of unnerving, unsettling because he had such tight security because of like the KKK, you know, like once you get out of Asheville, it can get a little dicey up there. Um, and it's just, you know, I think sometimes we tend to think of, you know, oh, well, Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated, but like that doesn't happen anymore. It's like, well, you know, when you're, when you're saying a lot of prophetic things, people tend to come for you. It was just really incredible to hear him speak, and everyone who was who was there was just like enraptured by him and everything that he had to say. Actually, coming up June twentieth, or maybe it's already passed by the time we publish this. But anyway, there is June twentieth of twenty twenty. The Poor People's Campaign will be having a mass Poor People's Assembly and Moral March on Washington digital justice gathering, which will be the largest digital gathering of poor and impacted people in this nation's history. Um, they're going to be talking about systematic racism, poverty, immigration, and so much more. There's going to be a lot of activists and actors and a lot of famous people, including Al Gore, Danny Glover, Jane Fonda, and Wanda Sykes. So very exciting. Literally, he's just such a, like, a powerhouse, like, whatever problem there is, he's there. I saw something just this morning about how he's trying to, to amplify the voices of, of Native and Indigenous folks who are losing their sacred lands. Literally, wherever justice needs to happen, like, he's there amplifying it, using whatever platform or resources he has, and he's just, like, he's so inspiring. I like him a lot. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah. Wow, I didn't realize that you had seen him at Wild Goose. That must yes. have been amazing. It was incredible. I think I tried, I don't know if I recorded it, but I know I was sitting in my chair with my journal and like frantically trying to like write yes. everything down that he said, like soak everything he said in because it was just incredible. And he was like, don't let the races win. You know, like we're all in this together. Like we have to fight, fight to end all of this to, to really kind of bring about God's vision for earth. Yeah. It was really cool. He's, he's definitely like you were saying, a prophetic figure. And I'm just amazed the way that you described this. You said that basically wherever there needs to be justice he's there amplifying like the people and the events mm -hmm. I think that is really beautiful and so true of his nature and the work he's done the poor people's campaign is so amazing and I like very briefly um, participated in some of their movements um, in 2018 to um, protest water shutoffs in Detroit and they're a really amazing organization because they're all about, you know, faith in action. Um, and 
I just feel like the people that are involved, they are faith-driven people or they're people who respect kind of the values of of faith or of scripture or of why someone would want to be involved mm-hmm. um, and always working for social justice movements. So many people who are involved are also clergy members or um, divinity school students, seminary students. So it's a really, it's a really amazing campaign mm-hmm. and I hope people check it out. Yeah. I'm sure they're inspired too. Right yeah. Check them out. They're also very interfaith. Like there's, there's mm-hmm. rabbis and imams who participate and it's, it's such a cool, like everything about it is such fusion, like politics, the people, it's amazing. And it's, it, it's not in a sense of like a melting pot where everything kind of gets wiped away, but respecting the particularities, but also finding that like that common identity of like, we all want, you know, a more just and peaceful society, which mm-hmm. is very good. So yeah. Who are you going to be talking about today? Yes, so you guys have already heard this name before. Someone already mentioned it, Um, but James Cone is the first theologian that I would like to talk about. So James Cone was born August 5th, 1938 in Arkansas, um, and he died on April 28th, 2018 in New York. Um, Until his death, he was the Charles uh, Augustus Briggs Distinguished Professor of Systematic Theology at Union Theological Seminary in New York. Um, he is most well known for, often he's credited as being the founder of Black theology, but I, I think I would rather say that he is a huge force um, and contributor to Black theology and Black liberation theology. Um, he was a member of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, um, and I studied him most, I, I knew him and I knew his work, but I studied him most in-depthly um, at Harvard Divinity School. Um, I was in a class on Reformed theology, and although he's not, you know, part of the Reformed canon necessarily, we discussed him a lot alongside Calvin, Schleiermacher, and Bart. So shout out to Michelle Sanchez, my professor, <laughs> to that class. Uh, and we read God of the Oppressed, which was originally written in 1975. Um, Cohen had published quite a few things before that relating to Black theology and Black liberation theology. Um, but I think this is probably his most known work, his most seminal work, um, and it was updated with a, with a preface and with some other things in 1997, um, particularly related to some of the criticism he received for not having completely inclusive language, from having more of um, like a male perspective, uh, like a cis uh, male perspective on theology and kind of moving through the world. Um, and he made sure to really, you know, mention and amplify the work of womanist, feminist, um, and and people of color, um, native peoples. He did a good job, I think, kind of finding where his shortcomings were in his original work and trying to make it more inclusive. Cohn wrote his doctoral thesis on Karl Barth, um, and he he really did a lot with the works of Theodicy and Wrath. He also critiques um, Barth's Imperial Man, which was too much of a focus of this kind of archetype of the white man or the European um, Eurocentric man that Barth is is describing um, in some of his work, or at least as a perspective that he has. Um, he's influenced by social theory and a lot of his writings. So like I was saying, Cohen borrows from Karl Barth's concept of God's freedom, for example, um, that God is a living God who is really only motivated by God's own volition. 
Um, so he, you know, God will listen to, um, the prayers and requests of people, but ultimately God is a free being. <laughs> and that's something that, you know, humans, theologians have to really grapple with, um, in order to understand kind of the magnificence and, um, omnipotence of God. Um, and so Cohn borrows this concept again, he wrote about Bart in his thesis, his doctoral thesis, um, but he calls this liberation instead. And a lot of his work, he also um, kind of undoes the idea of oppression um, and suffering being tied to kind of like a moral quality or this idea that if you are suffering, that means that you are like more pure of heart or that you're just waiting, you know, in this mortal life for some kind of redemption in the afterlife. Um, so Cohn recognizes that and he he realizes that for oppressed people that that's kind of a way of thinking that gets them through, allows them to survive and persist. Um, and so he recognizes that. And he specifically talks about this in the 1997 edition of God of the Oppressed. But he also flips it on the head and says, well, we can have this image, but we can also think of God and Jesus specifically as a liberator of the oppressed um, in fighting for equality and justice. Um, and so he takes... I won't say radical, but definitely this very like thought-provoking, inspirational, revolutionary, I think is the word I want to use, this revolutionary vision of Christ. Then again, he's very critical of atonement theory, um, theodicy, and wrath. Specifically in God of the Oppressed, I just want to talk about this a little bit. Cohn states the limits of the Bible as an authoritative text but not as a universal representation of the social, cultural, and spiritual experiences of an individual. So Cohn uh, regards the Bible as an important source of theological reflections, but he ultimately says that he is Black first and a Christian second. So he uses his Black experience ultimately as a guide for understanding his theology um, alongside scripture. And throughout the book, he you know, really discusses um, the music of enslaved people, hymns, contemporary hymns, older hymns, um, music created by Black folks as means of conveying, like lyrically, abstractly, spiritually, um, a theological experience that is unique to um, Black Americans. And this caused a little bit of controversy, um, stating that he was Black first and Christian second. But I think for me, it's it's a way of kind of dismantling this idea of a very whitewashed vision of Christianity um, that we so often encounter in different parts of the United States. Um, and he centers his own experience, which is God-given, you know, um, as this like anthropological and also literary basis for his theology. And it's really fascinating. And I'm always interested when authors tie in different sources into their theology um, and they make references that are related to popular culture, like Ding Ding, Mystics, and Mulder. <laughs> so I really, really appreciated this. Um, so for him, music is a means of resistance, solidarity, and storytelling among oppressed people and Black communities. Um, and this is really the core of some of his theological arguments and investigations. Um, and I just found it really fascinating. He also treats it as um, both joyful, but also a means of survival and empowerment. He also points to Christology and asks us what version of Jesus represents the Christian faith. 
is it the atoning Jesus suffering on the cross or is it the cross, is it the Christ who is leading, you know, leading folks who are marginalized and speaking out against oppression? For Cohn, Jesus is a liberating presence in the lives of the poor and their fight for dignity and worth. And his death represents a solidarity with the little ones, not necessarily God's sacrifice. And he attributes a lot of his thinking to feminist theology. And a quote that I find really interesting in how Cohn ties oppression to theodicy and to theology is... Faith is born out of suffering, and suffering is faith's most powerful contradiction. This is the Christian dilemma. The only meaningful Christian response is to resist unjust suffering and to accept the painful consequences of that resistance. So given that he was put into this Reformed class, I feel like that's a very interesting take on God's goodness um, and how we can act as God's agents in the world. So that's James Cohn. Thank you, Maeve. That's awesome. I I didn't know a lot about James Cone. I love that part when you were talking about the importance of Black joy. I think I've been saying that a lot on Twitter. Like, so often we just talk about, you know, Black people being oppressed and uh, experiencing systematic racism and systematic poverty and generational poverty and trauma. But how often do we amplify or talk about black joy? And so I really love that he connected that, like you were saying, to to his his theology, because I think that's so important. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. It was it was really fun to write this up and read about him and read a little bit more into his life. Who is your second person that you would like to discuss, Sarah? So it's kind of a a good segue um, from James Cone. I will be discussing Reverend Dr. Katie Geneva Cannon, um, who Claire talked about in her recording, but I have been thinking about her a lot recently, um, and I wanted to talk more about her So I'll be echoing some of the same things that Claire said in her recording. Katie Geneva Cannon is famous for being the first African-American woman ordained in the PCUSA and for her work in womanist theology. She's definitely another powerhouse and another trailblazer. Um, I got my sources from blackpast.com, Presbyterian Outlook, Form for Theological Exploration, and Wikipedia. <laughs> There's just so much North Carolina in, in all of this. It's so funny because she was born January 3rd, 1950 in Kannapolis, North Carolina, which I was listening to an interview with her and she described as a modern day plantation, like, like anthropologists would come in and study it. It was the largest unincorporated area, I think, in the nation for a long time until it became a city and there was just, you know, segregation. But in 1974, she received her MDiv from the Interdenominational Theological Center in Atlanta. She said that she entered agnostic because during that time, you know, she it was a lot of, uh, you know, Black Power movement, the Black Panthers were around, and there was just a lot of like black nationalism and she was like christianity is such a slaveholding religion but then you know she started to read james cone and was around a lot of radical christians and then she became really invested and involved in 
black liberation theology because she wanted, you know, her politics to match up with her religion. And she realized that, you know, it, it was right there. Like, they're not antithetical. In 1974, she was ordained in Shelby, North Carolina by the Catawba Presbytery. And I actually know someone from Shelby, North Carolina. And I was so surprised that Katie Geneva Cannon was ordained there because that town is so tiny. It is barely on the map. Anyway, <laughs> she was, one thing that I just, I mean, I, I was just so, so astounded by everything she ever did because she's incredible. But so in the United Presbyterian Church, which is the predecessor of the PCUSA, there were only 154 women in the clergy at that time in the entire nation. First of all, there just weren't a lot of women ministers. And then, and then she becomes the first African-American woman. It's just incredible. And in 1983, she received a master's and doctorate of philosophy from Union Seminary in New York. She's been a professor at several different universities and seminaries, including Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond, Davidson College, which I didn't know. I didn't know she taught at Davidson. Hello, it's a great day to be a Wildcat. Uh, Williams College and Harvard Divinity School. May, what's up? Whoa, whoa. <laughs> She's written multiple books and articles, including God's Fierce Whimsy, Implications for Feminism for Theological Education, and Inheriting Our Mother's Gardens, Feminist Theology in Third World Perspective. And she also founded the Center for Womanist Leadership that now bears her name at Union Presbyterian Seminary. Um, so one thing that she, in her interviews and in the way that people wrote about her was just how much she was a teacher uh, and how much she mixed uh, education and ministry and how she used ministry as a vocation. And I just, I think that's really beautiful because, well, for a number of reasons, but I think it really kind of, even though she was ordained, it, it kind of amplifies this this idea that we have in the PCUSA of the priesthood of all believers. You know, like this is her pulpit. The classroom is her is her congregation. I just really love that idea because you can tell just from the way that people talk about her and in in her her interviews that she just loved teaching. She said she she used to play school as a child and like used to give her siblings homework, uh, which is just so cute. Also, what's, what's really important is that she, like you mentioned, that James Cone, initially, it was very much about the experiences of Black men, but she kind of, I don't, I don't know if took up the mantle is the best word to say, but she kind of led the charge in making sure that the experiences of, of Black women were heard in the church. Following the tradition of, of Alice Walker used womanism, so she looked at ethics through the lens of uh, black women, so looking at both, both the joys and the traumas. And like I said, there had been what Dolores Williams called God talk been happening, but it wasn't well regarded because it was by black women. Um, so she was really instrumental in, you know, making sure that it had a foothold in the church. And unlike a lot of the white theologians who are asking, you know, how many angels can fit in the head head of a pin? She she was like, I don't care. It wasn't abstract or ideal to her. It was like the church has to do something because people are suffering. And 
and we can't just sit idly by. So she she wrote about it, she created it, she put it in academic spaces. And again, like like uh, Claire said, the the suffering that that so often, like you talked about, Maeve with James Cone, and so often that theologians talk about, it's it comes often from a, a very privileged perspective. If a rich person wanted to quote unquote suffer, like it's something they could opt into and opt out of. But unlike them, you know, black women experience suffering day in and day out. And so she wanted to to make space for that. Um, but another thing that I really enjoyed like reading about her and hearing about people who interacted with her um, was that she just had such a deep sense of joy about her and such a sense of humor like she is so funny so she's not just this kind of austere thinker but I like she really put her theology into practice also someone else spoke about how the theologian they looked up to as a professor does so much work I think that's that's so true of so many not even just theologians but like professors of color they you know do a lot of emotional labor of like creating bonds for their students like that's such an integral part of of their of their their teaching and and how they just go go and move through the world but she she did recently pass and so her legacy i think is is not only of significant academic contribution but also of deep relational bonds with her students and those who knew her and now also because of the womanist center those who passed through those halls and learned from their programming also have within them her legacy. So that is Katie Geneva Cannon. Yay! That was beautiful. Thank you. She's made such an impact on our friends and colleagues in ministry. And I know her passing was very sudden and um, very painful for a lot of people, but she's she has such an amazing legacy. So I'm glad that you were able to talk about her today. Yeah, she's very cool. Yes, this actually leads pretty well into my second person who we're going to wrap up with, um, and that is Emily Towns, who was born August 1st, 1955 in Durham, North Carolina. Shout out to North Carolina. I don't know what it is about the state, but uh, <laughs> um, she has been the Dean and E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter Professor of Womanist Ethics and Society at Vanderbilt University Divinity School since 2013. She was the first Black woman to be elected president of the American Academy of Religion in 2008, which is huge, AAR, shout out to that too, um, and served as president of the Society for the Study of Black Religions from 2013 to 2016. She taught at St. Paul School of Theology, Union Theological Seminary, Yale Divinity School, and she has also been an ordained American Baptist minister since 1980. So she is a powerhouse. She is so amazing, influential. I just, I can't say any, anything more. She's just so wonderful. Um, but I think she's a great kind of segue from Katie Geneva Cannon because um, she also is working within this womanist tradition. And it's interesting what you were saying about one of the books that Katie Cannon wrote. Um, I think it references one of Alice Walker's work. So she wrote, yeah, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, Womanist Prose in 1983, which was actually said that, you know, feminism is a subset of womanism um, and it was a quest for a particular experience. And another book that is really influential to womanism is Clenora Hudson Weems' Africana Womanism, 
Muslims uh, reclaiming ourselves from 1993 or Africana womanism, uh, pardon me. And she writes that womanism is a critique of the white middle-class feminism. And it also advocates for a stronger commitment to the particularity of culture and history. So culture is a lens through which gender is experienced. Um, she also differentiated the relationship to marginalization of Black men. And there was a heavier emphasis on spirituality and religion. So womanism under it, it kind of undoes this antagonism between feminism and religion that you often see in scholarship, that there's not a coexistence. Womanism says, actually, yeah, yeah, there is. And it centers the lives and experiences of Black women particularly. Um, and this is kind of getting back to what I was saying about Cohn, how he uses popular culture, um, his own experiences um, as a Black man, culture within the United States as sources of theology. Um, Towns does this too. There's a huge emphasis on literature as a source of ethics and ethical inspiration, um, and womanism and feminism as particularized um, experiences within the lives of Black women. And she writes about this quite a bit in Womanist Ethics and the Cultural Production of Evil, which is from 2006. Um, and it's about, as the title references, the cultural production of evil, the perpetuation of stereotypes, discrimination, and systemic violence, and the effects of those evils, especially on the experiences of Black women in the United States. Um, and she starts this by explaining the historical stereotyping of Black women and how these falsified, falsified identities have persisted today. Um, and this is kind of in cue with what we've been talking about also, but she has a very prophetic approach. And in um, the introduction or the preface, um, actually the, the word prophecy and um, prophetic language are used. So she identifies the many layers of evil that are built into the United States. And she asks readers to look towards paths of justice and hope and invites them to be part of this pro-solidarity counterculture against evil. And to do this, she really emphasizes the use of counter memory. So looking at history and memory that's told from a certain perspective and countering that through the experiences of marginalized oppressed groups or groups that just aren't featured, aren't asked for their contributions, um, you know, in the history that we, that we hear about and read about. Um, and she asks us to use faith, to use sources of literature, um, to use this really interdisciplinary look at life, to rely upon personal experiences as a way to rebuild um, our systems in the United States in an ethical way, in a way that counters injustice and discrimination, also in a faith-based way. Um, and also to really be a guiding force in social change and to reconstitute history. Um, a part that I particularly love, which is just right off the bat, is she starts um, her book with this poem and she um, references a little Emily who is listening to everything going on. So I imagine like a little Emily Towns who's like seven years old um, growing up to become this amazing theologian. It's so sweet. And it's um, it's a poem. So again, she's just like very early on dedicating her work to the importance of poetry, to literature, to personal experience, and the power of memory. So she's wonderful. And one of the quotes that I, I like um, is she writes, my task is to explore the twists and turns of the communities from which we spring and have our very life and breath. 
It is to be very particular about the particular and explore the vastness of it. I really adore her. Um, she references Toni Morrison a lot, which also is, you know, a huge figure. And I feel like the theologians and professors, at least at HDS, that I know really look towards Toni Morrison. Um, she puts her in conversation with Richard Niebuhr, which is pretty cool. <laughs> uh, and she's just really into interconnectivity, equality, humanity, history, and memory. So, so go, so go and read Emily Towns. She sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. I love that that quote that you read of hers and also that idea of like counter memory mm-hmm. because the history books and the the narratives that we say are just I mean it's filled with definitely a particular point of view and like mm-hmm. such propaganda you know mm-hmm. um and just having something else to say well actually you know like this time wasn't great for everybody <laughs> you know uh, or like there was other things that were going on too um is so important and i'm glad she gave that a name that's awesome for real she has a quote that's the memory is the site of real knowledge and when we recognize that we break the site of the production of knowledge out of the colonizing elite and we extend to a broader cast of characters she is just so good wow sounds phenomenal Mm -hmm. definitely gonna have to go read up read some of her books and musings that's awesome wow well thank you for sharing those Maeve as we wrap up I think we wanted to give just some final book recommendations um, if people are interested in in learning more from black theologians and other theologians of color Maeve would you want to go first or would you like me to go first I can go first okay I have four um, theologians of color that I would love for everyone to check out. I'm just going to give them a brief kind of overview um, with a list of some of their books, if you're interested. So the first one is Myra Rivera Rivera, who is the Andrew W. Mellon Professor of Religion and Latinx Studies at Harvard Divinity School. Um, she works with a lot of post-colonial um, theories and theologies. And so she's really, really an amazing figure in that field. She wrote The Touch of Transcendence, A Post-Colonial Theology of God, Um, And she also wrote The Poetics of Flesh, which analyzes flesh as a metaphor for social discourse. She's also been the editor of Postcolonial Theologies, Divinity and Empire. So if that is in your wheelhouse, if you're interested, check her out. Um, another one is Cornell West. How how can we forget? How could we forget? <laughs> could we forget? So if you're Such into political icon. activism, if you're interested in social criticism, if you like The Matrix, perhaps, um, I don't know. Ooh, I do. Who's uh, to then, say? Then, then check that out. Uh, he is, I feel like Cornell West is a huge pop culture figure. Like MTV is awarded to things. Uh, really? You know, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh my god. Everybody gosh. loves him. He Oh, yeah, and he how sent can me you that not? clip. It's so true. Like Anderson Cooper has interviewed yeah. him, which I mean, what And an he honor. was he was in your commencement. What do you call it? Like the beginning yeah. of orientations. He right? was. Yes, he he spoke. Um I would love to take class with him. So hopefully that will happen soon. Um, another person I would like to discuss, um, her name is Ada Maria Isasi Diaz, and she wrote Mujerista Theology, Liberation Theology Through Lens of Gender. Um, so she works primarily within this Catholic 
church culture. Um, and she talks about that through the perspective of Latinas, particularly in the United States. So that is kind of like, I think a great jumping point, one for really understanding these perspectives, but also it leads you to different books and different theologians. So it's a great starting point um, for, for Latinx theology. Last one I want to discuss um, is Mehi Kim Court. She wrote Making Paper Cranes Toward an Asian American Feminist Theology. I've heard she has a really amazing Twitter account, but um, her it's private now. So unfortunately, I can't. Yeah. But, Tragic. Um, Reverend so Barber also has a pretty, pretty fire Twitter account. Mm. recommend following him. <laughs> I mean, give us all the tweets. Give us your insight, please. <laughs> give um, us your insight as long as it's under 240 characters. Sorry. Yeah, my ahead. attention span is... <laughs> please cater to my attention span. Um, she's also an ordained PCUSA minister, and she wrote Outside the Lines, How Embracing Queerness Will Transform Your Faith with the foreword from Rachel Held Evans. She's very cool. Um, so look, you know, look into her work, too. Incredible. Thank you, Maeve. Mm -hmm. um, not all of these are the ones that I have are necessarily um, womanist theology books, but I think are good womanist, you know, Black women writers. So Black Feminist Thought by Pat Patricia Hill Collins. Really anything by like Bell Hooks, by Zora Neal Hurston. I'm currently reading some Angela Davis. Um, anything by them is really good and and really I think is foundational if you're trying to decenter your whiteness and and really have an intersectional approach to your theology and just to the way that you live your life. So yeah, I, I mean those are more just like authors that I think are like really good foundation ones. Uh, Audre Lord is another one. Toni Morrison, like you said. So yeah, but thank you for giving those ones, Maeve. Yeah, and thanks for your recommendations too. Finally, we wanted to just make one more comment with everything going on, especially if you are a white person or non-black person with some proximity to wealth or you know with time on your hands, make sure that you are doing the important work of educating yourself and donating to, you know, local bail funds and supporting black business, um, donating to local grassroots organizations, especially for, you know, the most marginalized among us, like black trans women, and check out what organizers are doing in, in your area and see how you can support the projects that they're doing with your time and money. Yes, so important. Keep supporting these folks. You know, I, I know that right now is a really painful time for a lot of people, um, especially amidst the protest and the police violence and police brutality. But I also think it's a really hopeful time and a time where it looks like there's going to be a lot of great social change. Mm -hmm. so. And even if, if, you know, the marches aren't trending on Twitter or they're not on, on uh, the news, it's still, you know, we, the fight is still going on. We have to keep going at it. Um, so thank you for listening. Thank you to Motion for our music. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram and Maeve's incredible compilation 
that she's done on the Tumblr. <laughs> we also have a website and yes. um, an email. You can email us at mysticsandmolder at gmail.com. And I think that's it. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Take care.